I would invite you to turn in your Bible to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 4. We'll begin reading in verse 1. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 1. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourself also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles, having having pursued the course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In In all of this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excess of dissipation. And they malign you, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached, even to those who are dead, that though they were judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the Spirit according to the will of God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you so much for just the wonderful songs already that's lifted our hearts up to you. And now, Lord, we we come to your word and it too lifts us up to you. It focuses our attention on what you have to say, your thoughts, your direction for your church. And Lord, may we honor this time and realize what is happening here, that we are hearing from you And then, Lord, may we respond in like manner. May we respond in a way that's honoring and glorifying to you. May we respond by applying these things to our lives and bringing you glory through our living. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Soldiers must have proper motivation in the army, in the military. And so that's why there's generals. Generals give instruction. They give um, a direction to the army. But they also motivate. From time to time, they have to motivate. Sergeants have to get in there and yell at these men to motivate them, to, especially in battle. And then when you begin to hear shots, when you begin to be fired at, then you, you take cover and you defend yourself and you protect yourself. But to stay motivated, they have to have someone, some external motivation, someone motivating them, pushing them. They really need from day to day to live in that kind of battle, to live that kind of life. They need some cause, something bigger than themselves, some greater motivation, sometimes uh, something that, that causes them to, to join the military in the first place, why they're doing what they're doing, why did I even sign up for this? 
And it has to be a good cause. It has to be a good cause for them to fight day in and day out, to be able to endure and fight with tenacity. You have to have a high, be highly motivated. Motivated enough to, to say, I will not quit. And quitting is, is not an option. And I will push forward and I will progress. And much like we have to do on a daily basis, when we're just doing the, the daily task of, of life, getting up early or doing laundry, going to work, we have to have a cause, we have to have a purpose. There has to be some motivation there. And in World War II, there was a, a lot of the men and women who fought, they would take pictures and put them in the workplace. They, so they would see these pictures every day, pictures of their wife, pictures of their children and family, or maybe a picture of their, their home place. Something that would cause them to remember why they're fighting, the, the greater cause, why they're doing what they're doing. The faces of the children, the faces of their wife. And that caused them to, to really, that generation was able to do almost the impossible. And they stood for freedom and love of country and love of family. They were able to, to do this because of the great cause. They were highly motivated. And Peter understands the importance of motivation. The need for motivation. And we are at the heart of this letter from Peter to the churches of Asia Minor. And essentially he is giving us the really the essence, the, the principles, the essential principles that are uh, to help us with godly suffering, for unjust suffering. And he has listed for us, if you see on the screen, I'll do a little depiction for you here. I think it's on the screen. That, uh, first of all, he, he lists these things, these characteristics, or he gives us this point of conflict and, and then lists these things that uh, we need to do. Really, it's a philosophy, an approach to be able to uh, approach persecution and suffering in a way that glorifies and honors God. And he starts with the conflict, what people see, but then he uh, gives us the, the lifestyle that underlines, undermines that. And then underneath that, he, he gives us the drive, the motivation that pushes us onto that. Peter understood the importance of motivation. And he's turning his attention now to this motivation, this high level of motivation that will cause the church to go through persecution with their faith intact. That's the goal. And some motivations are, are not very strong. I'm not gonna, I, I like ice cream, but I'm not going to go to war for ice cream. But I will go to war over my children, my wife's safety. And to, to suffer is, is not a natural thing. To go through persecution is not a natural thing. To be able to endure such a thing with, with victory, it takes strong motivation. Um, you watch TV, you watch uh, movies every once in a while, and, and to extract information from people, these bad guys, they will tie them to the chairs, tie their, to their, uh, tie their arms down, and... Uh, and, and 
punish them, persecute them in some ways, and, and they want information, tell us or we're going to kill you. And they will hold out. But then, and they'll hold out as long as they can, but then they say, well, we're going to, we're going to grab your children, we're going to get your, your wife. And they willingly give up this information. Because the bad guys know what motivates. What motivates. There's strong motivation there. And in this passage, Peter's giving us three elements here that underline the, the motivation, whether it's conscious or unconscious, this drives the believer, this drives the, the true believer to, to go beyond the sufferings of this world beyond just self-defense into an a initiative motive. And he, he's pushing us. He is, he's wanting us to, to be motivated here. He wants us to, to get our attention on some pictures that will help to motivate us. And we must prepare as children, as children of God, as believers. We've, we've got to prepare ourselves to go through the worst of the persecution with our eyes on those things that will carry us through the flames of those persecution, even in unjust suffering. Even when we don't deserve it. We don't deserve the suffering. We, we push through anyway. To finish the fight and to, to not give up and to, to face persecution with our faith even stronger, we have to have a strong motivation. Now, the question then is, is what causes us? What causes the believer to, to endure suffering? To, even to the point of, of death, suffering to the point that, that we will die for the sake of Christ. What are some strong motivations for the believer that will help us to endure persecution? Peter gives us three. Three primary targets, like, like pictures that we would put up, something that we would see every day that would keep us motivated to, to persevere, even to the point of death. We see the first one in verse 4. And the first one is God's will. first one we see is, is God's will. We are motivated by the will of God. Look at verse 1, chapter 4 and verse 1. Therefore, since Christ has suffered for the... Uh, Christ has suffered in the flesh. Arm yourself also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer to the flesh of men, but for the will of God. It's God's will that, that drove Christ. And Christ submitted to the will of God. Now, why did he do that? I want you to see this. I want to lay this out for you. In John chapter, in the whole book of John, there's a, a list of verses. You might see them on the screen. Um, John, the book of John, John chapter 4, verse 31, 34, is the first one. I want you to see these. It's important that we understand where Christ's uh, motivation in, in his drive came from. In fact, we are to arm ourselves with the same, with the same tools or the same motivation that Christ had, the same purpose. John chapter 4, verse 34 is the first one. Christ said this, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his will. 
It's, it's, it's what drives Christ. It was his hunger and thirst to do his Father's will. And, and that's what fed him. And that, that's what caused him to accomplish his Father's will. That's pretty clear. John chapter 5 and verse 50. We see another one. Another verse. John chapter 5 and verse 30. I'm sorry. I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will. I don't even take my own initiative. The Father gives me initiative. I don't do these things for my own will. He goes on to say, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. That's pretty clear. And he is he is forceful in in him saying these things. He's doing this intentionally as an example for us. In John chapter 6, verse 38, he says, Jesus Uh, In verse 38, he says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but I raise them up on the last day. For this is the will of him, this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him, will have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. What drove Christ was the will of God, and that will was to accomplish the redemption of man. That drove Christ. John chapter 12, verse 49. We see another one. John chapter 12, verse 49 says, For I do not seek my own initiative, do not, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father Himself who sent me has given me a commandment as, I, as to what to say and what to speak. And I know that His commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things that I speak, I speak just as the Father told me. That's pretty specific. I only do what the Father has commanded me to do. Even I, I only say what the Father commands me to say. I don't, I don't do these things out of my own initiative, out of his own fleshly desires or, or anything of the flesh at all. John chapter 17, verse 4. He says this, and this is Christ praying in the garden right before the, the, uh, Roman soldiers come and get him. He's praying to his heavenly father. And he says this, I glorified you on the earth. I have accomplished the work which you have given me to do. To this point, Christ has, has done everything that needed to be done. The only thing left was to die on the cross. And Christ was facing that really in a few hours. And he says, it'll be done. Chapter 19. He was fully aware that he was here on this earth with a purpose. John chapter 19 and verse 28. He says this. And he's hanging on the cross. He says, and after this, Jesus, knowing that all things have already been accomplished to fulfill Scripture, he says, I thirst. Even, even his mindset on the, the cross was to fulfill Scripture, things that God had commanded him to do. And at the end, verse 30, it says, Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, 
he said, it is finished. He was fully aware that he was accomplishing God's task, God's will, even when he was dying. Even when his life was flowing out of him. Now, folks, that is submitting to the point, uh, submitting his will to God's will, even to the point of death. His desire was to please his father. And we are to arm ourselves with the same purpose, Peter says. Go back to 1 Peter chapter 4. We're to aim or arm ourselves. The word arm there is to, to pick up a weapon or to pick up a tool and to arm ourselves to be prepared, have this same purpose, the same mindset that Christ had. Now, then Peter goes on and says this. Because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, this is probably a little quote that would be uh, would be passed on from uh, one disciple to another. That some some believe that they uh, that this is one of those little quotes that they would uh, that they would use. Now, this this could be misunderstood very easily, and uh, there's a couple of views of this little phrase. Some would say that uh, he is saying that those who stand for righteousness, even to the point of, of death, if they're standing for that righteousness, has effectively broken the, the domination of sin in their life or, or the dominant sin in their life. Because they're standing for righteousness, then they're not going to suffer from the power of sin anymore. I'm not sure that that's the... That's the real point that Peter is making here. They would, they would say that their pursuit of sin has, has stopped in their life once they take a stand for Christ. But I don't really see that. I think what Paul is, or Peter is saying with this verse, he says, because he ha- who has suffered in the flesh, the word suffered there, suffered to the point of death, be willing to, to die. In fact, died is, it could be, uh, translated. Uh, they, they have ceased to live um, would probably be more of the lines that because it has stopped, it says they have ceased, they have suffered to the point of death in the flesh, has ceased from sin. They've stopped sinning. Now, here's the picture. Once you die, you're not tied to that flesh anymore and there's no more sin. You're not going to be sinning anymore because that fleshly uh, sinful body has been done away with. And, and that's the idea here. And you can see that in Romans chapter 7, verse 5. Paul says this, For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at, the, at work in the members of our body, at the, uh, to bear fruit for death. We, we, we can not do anything but, but sin when we're in this sinful flesh. And he says the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now, here's the point. He says we are to, to live as dead in the flesh, as though our flesh were, were dead, and we're to live uh, not to our own fleshly desires, but for the will of God. He goes on to say... Uh, in verse 2, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. 
We're to put aside that those desires of the flesh, those desires that are common to men, and we're to live according to the will of God. I think that's pretty clear. I think that's pretty clear. That's what we are to do. Uh, we are to live to the will of God. And he points, he, he paints a, a very clear, distinct picture of the two. You have on the one hand, those who are uh, driven by the cravings of this life, and then those who are driven by the will of God. And we are to be those who are driven by the will of, of God. No longer self-willed, but driven by the will of God. To the same degree that we arm ourselves, just like we arm ourselves that Christ did. That's exactly what Christ did. Christ was driven by the will of God. He completely trusted God's plan. He didn't pick up uh, plan B. He didn't, he didn't go with his own option. And it comes down to God's sovereign plan, not mine. And it's just the opposite of what we see with Jonah, isn't it? God tells Jonah, Jonah, I want you to go over here. Jonah goes completely the opposite way. Jonah does what he wants to do. He does his own will. That's exactly what the believer is not to do. We completely and constantly submit ourselves to the will of God. His will becomes our law. His word becomes our rule. His son's life, our example, his spirit, rather than our soul, controls every action, one of the commentaries said. And God's sovereign, or if God's sovereignly led me to the point of persecution and even death on the cross or death in any other way, I'm going to submit to that. If that's God's will for my life, I will submit to that for His glory. That's the point that Peter is trying to make here. Now, the question is, do we, can, do we comfort ourselves with the, the sovereignty of God? Or do we, or does it scare us to death? We think of the sovereignty of God and we get scared, or, or maybe we complain that that's God's will, it's not really my will. If we can't live, folks, dependent upon the Lord, how do we think we're going to have the strength to die for Christ? How can we, how do we think? What makes us think that if we're not trusting God with our life, how do we think that we're going to trust God with our death when it comes time to die? And I'm afraid that there's a lot of people that is fooling themselves because they, they live one way. They're not going to have the, the natural strength. They're not going to have the response to submit to Christ when it comes time to die. And they're not going to be able to do that. So. Suffer to the point of death for him. So Peter is, is saying that we have to evaluate ourselves. We have to look at ourselves. Are, are we driven by our own will? Or are we driven by the will of God? Number two, the second motivation, motivating factor is found in verse three. And that is we are motivated by the sinful past. Now that's interesting. But verse three says this. For the time already past is sufficient for you to carry out the desires of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. 
in all of these things, they are surprised that you not you do not run with them into the same excess of dissipation, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Now, Peter is saying that we don't we don't retreat, we don't turn back, we don't go back to that old life. We need to understand. We need to understand a little bit here at the, about the, the Roman form of worship, pagan worship in their day, because that's what he's talking about. These are lists of things that are found in pagan worship. In the temple worship of the Roman gods, you, it would consist of a, a tax that you would pay every year. Uh, it would consist of you attending the, the festivals that would honor or celebrate a particular god. There was the Roman gods. There was a pantheon of gods, uh, and you would go to different temples, and they would involve uh, drinking and even prostitutions. And those would those would be ways to commune with the gods. And he lists some of those things here. I'm not going to uh, go through each one of them, but. But you see the list there, sensualities, lust, drunkenness, carousing. They're all having to do with, with pagan worship. It really sounds more like our uh, universities today, it seems like. And Peter says they want you to join in with them, and so they malign you when they don't, when you don't. They don't understand why. In fact, what happened in Roman times, there was a growing suspicion with the uh, and distrust among the, uh, the Romans and the Christians, and they were seen. The Christians were seen as pagan, or, or they were seen as atheists, not believing in any of the gods because they wouldn't participate in the worship of the Roman gods. And so there was suspicion there. And when it came time to uh, to blame uh, someone for the burning of Rome, Caesar blamed the Christians. And the people picked up on that and just, yes, we'll blame the Christians because it's easy to hate them because they're the outsider. And then persecution came in when the Christians refused to pay the temple tax. Just one little coin. It would have been so easy just to pay that little tax. A few cents. It would have been nothing. And so persecution would come upon the church. And they Refuse to to celebrate the the and honor these these gods. They refuse to to visit the temple and be involved in the drunkenness and the dissipation, the prostitution that would be there. Or maybe an authority figure would notice, hey, they're not even coming at all. Something's wrong. They don't fit in because they won't join us. Paul says they they malign you. They, they heap abuse upon you. They, they ruin your reputation. They def, defame you. You don't fit in. They mark you out to be the bad person. And they attack the, your character and the character of your God. And that's the way persecution would come. It, it may cost them their job, it may cost them friends, it may cost them even family members that won't associate with them anymore, it may cost them a position, they may not even be able to buy food at the local grocery store anymore, they may have been put to death even as a result of them not fitting in. 
But Peter reminds them in verse 5, he says, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. There's no escaping both the living and the dead. They're going to stand before God in in a court, and it's going to be hard for these people to uh, defend their actions fighting against God's people. So Peter is saying we, we need to resolve ourselves to, to not go back, to not retreat. Men will not draw us back into that sinful lifestyle of the past. That's the way David and, and his friends were when they were in the uh, Babylonian conquest, weren't they? When they were among these ungodly uh, people, they stood and they said, we will not bow. You can throw us into that fiery furnace, but we will not bow the knee. Folks, that's the way we have to be. Let's just apply this a little bit. How easy is it for, for some Christians of our day to, to just fit right back into an old lifestyle? Or, or to be influenced by others to, to just come back? How easy for it is us to, uh, to fall back into an old sinful lifestyle that we used to have? And my fear is that these shallow Christians, and we have a, a shallow church today in, in America, these shallow Christians really are, are still attached to the culture. They're still attached. They don't, they don't want to give up the flawed thinking. They don't want to give up the self-centered, immoral dress or the ungodly opinions or the corrupt music or the perverted comedy and twisted entertainment. They don't want to give up the daily habits. They don't want to give up those old relationships. They hold on to those things. Shallow Christians hold on to those things like a security blanket as opposed to stepping out in faith in God and God's sovereignty and God's will and God's control. We hold on to those things like a security blanket. We see so many people doing that today. And they don't, they don't want to let go of that old life, if you will. In fact, you, you can see that kind of in the church because they don't, they don't want to have a renewed mind. They don't want to stand out because that's scary. That's a life of faith. That, that's going to cause me to be different. And so they hold on to those things, those past lifestyle elements and as a security blanket, as a to make them feel good. They want to fit in. Because nobody likes to stand out. It's going to cause persecution. It's going to cause ridicule upon me. And that's just the opposite of what you see true Christians in Scripture. Folks, we have to evaluate. We have to evaluate the church of today with the church of, of Christ back then. They're willing to stand. And folks, we've already touched that hot stove. We know that that hurts, and we don't want to do that again. We, we can't go back, and that's a motivating factor for the believer. We're motivated by the will of God. We're motivated by past sins. And then number three, we're motivated by eternal life. Look down in verse 6. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached, even to those who, have, who are dead. Now, that's died uh, in the past up to the point where Peter is writing this letter. These are people who have died in Christ. That though they were judged in the flesh, that's by other men, and, and maybe even killed, put to death, 
they may live in the Spirit according to the will of God. If it is God's will that they were a martyr, Paul says, in Christ, they were living in Christ, they are now living in the Spirit. That's the point here. And he's drawing a contrast between these two people. And the contrast, what makes the difference between these two people is one thing. And that's the gospel. That's the change element. And that's what he's talking about here. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached. It changes us. It changes us. So we're no longer in the flesh, just in the flesh. We're, we're walking in the Spirit. And when we die, we will just continue to walk in the Spirit. Now that's, that's foreign thinking to these people who have uh, no understanding of an afterlife. And Paul had to address this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Remember, there was uh, believers that... that we're not aware of what would happen after we die. And, and Peter is trying to correct some of the thinking here, I believe. In First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, he says, But we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, about those who have fallen asleep, those who have died, so that you will not grieve as the rest who do not have hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Christ. For this, for this we say that you, by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with the Lord and will... and not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and with the dead in Christ will rise first. There's life after death, and that's what Peter is saying here. There is an eternity, and death doesn't terminate our life with Christ. Believers will consummate their union with God when we die. Now, Christianity would be nothing without eternal life. If there was no eternal life, there was nothing after death, then we, we have no hope, like Paul says. Now, let's just apply this quickly. Can we see beyond death, folks? Can we see beyond death? Can we see beyond this life? Can we see into eternity? Or better yet, the better question is, can unbelievers see that hope in us? Or do we appear hopeless just like they do? Can we endure the, the, the things of this earth? Can we endure anything that the world would dish out to us by looking beyond this suffering of this world. And folks, we can ride through so much of the suffering of this world just by looking and fixing our gaze upon the upon eternity. But I'm afraid that we're trying to fix this earth to be heaven on earth. And the gospel is not to to fix this earth. It is to prepare us, prepare us for the next earth. The new heaven and the new earth. The next world. And we live in light of eternity. Not a shallow temporal world. 
But for eternity, for living with God for all eternity, that's what motivates us. We're motivated by the will of God. We want to please our Father. We're motivated by not turning back and not going back into that old lifestyle. We've tried that and Peter says it's enough. And we're motivated by eternity, by looking ahead. Now the believer, we have to keep our eyes on these things. We have to look at these things. And, and these things will help carry us through the, the flames of unjust suffering. And the punishment that we may receive on this earth. The question is, what will it take for you to walk away? What would it take? Anything? Could, could you do it? Could you just walk away from Christ? Can you just forsake all of this Christian What we know to be true, can you do that? We have to commit ourselves. We have to resolve ourselves. That that we will have the tenacity to fight. We will have the motivation. And I I believe that it comes to us from Scripture. Let me close with this one last verse. It was the last few verses that Blaine read for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16 says, Therefore, we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. And while we look not at the things which are seen, that is this this temporal world, but the things which are not seen. The things that are seen are temporal, he says. But the things that are not seen are eternal. Folks, that's our focus. That's where we have to get our motivation from. We look. We look at what Christ has done. We submit ourselves to His God's will for our life. And that motivates us. And we we dare not retreat. We dare not turn back. And we just keep our eyes focused on eternity. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank You for Your Word. I, I pray, Lord, that we would apply these things to our heart, to our thinking, so, so that we can approach the persecution and the difficulties of this day with the right frame of mind, with the same purpose that Christ had, the same attitude that Christ had, a willingness to submit to Your will, whatever it is for our life. And Lord, I pray that we would keep our eyes on eternity. And we thank You, Lord, for that change agent, that change element that caused us to be born again to a living hope, to be able to to live in the Spirit. And Lord, may you get glory and honor for our life. No matter what you bring our way, may we respond in the a proper way that would always honor you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.